Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're back in 1 Samuel after I was away last week in Nashville, officiating the wedding of uh, Christian and Madison. Uh, It was a delightful outdoor uh, wedding, but I missed you and worshiping with you on the Lord's Day. Many thanks to Scott for leading the service and for Dan Schweder for bringing the word to us uh, faithfully last week. This morning, then, we return to the story of uh, Saul, actually. That's the portion we're in. We've seen thus far uh, that the first king of Israel, Saul, is a fool. What Israel needs is a better king, a good king, a wise king, the true and final king, King Jesus. More recently, back in verses 1 to 23 of chapter 14, this is on page 235 and 6, we saw Jonathan, the king's son, uh, have a a courageous display in a daring um, attack on the Philistines, the enemies and oppressors of Israel, seeking to liberate Israel. But Saul was paralyzed with inaction, uh, Jonathan trusted in a big God. You may remember it, verse 6 in chapter 14. He said, it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. He had a big view of God and his power to act and certainly his freedom to act as he pleases. Saul, on the other hand, is unbelieving and sitting on his hands. And... Uh, Through Jonathan's action, the Lord, he gets all the credit, the Lord saved Israel that day, delivered them. Now this morning, uh, as the story continues, uh, we discover the greater depths of the failures of Saul's leadership. And that's actually the subject then. You know that wise people learn from their own mistakes, hopefully, wise people do, Uh, Saul doesn't seem to do that. Wise people also learn from the mistakes of others. And may the Lord make us wise as we examine Saul's. Uh, May the Lord make us not proud, but humble. And uh, let me give you the outline of where we are in the passage, verses 24 through 46, before we read it. Just so you can see where we're going. We're going to see in the first place, beginning at verse 24, the failures of Saul as the commander of the army. Then, uh, then we're going to see the failures of Saul as a religious leader. And finally, the failures of Saul as a, a father to his son. So let me invite you to pay attention to the word of God. From 1 Samuel chapter 14, we'll be reading verses 24 through 46. This is the word of God. And the men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening. I am avenged uh, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your 
father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aishalon and the people were faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So Every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. And then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die? Who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Impress this story on our hearts. Enlighten our eyes. Make wise the simple. 
and make humble the proud. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a uh, good day in Israel and a bad day. And it was the same day. We mentioned that the last time we were together. And we looked at the good day parts. It was summarized at verse 23. The Lord saved Israel that day. It was a good day. But it was also a bad day. You can have good days that are also bad days. I was reading the story about a baseball team at the turn of the century uh, and, and nearly 18 years ago. Uh, it was a semi-pro uh, game between two Minnesota teams. At the, the, the end of nine innings, they were locked at zero. And so at the top of the 10th, the team from Benson scored. And so Wilmer came up to bat at the bottom half of the inning. And Thielman, their pitcher, who was also batting, uh, hit a single. O'Toole, who followed him, uh, knocked it into the outfield. And the crowd began to roar as the runners raced the bases. And Thielman uh, was, was headed for third, and O'Toole was just right behind him. And then suddenly, on, uh, on third base, Thielman simply collapsed. And O'Toole half carried and half dragged him the rest of the way to home plate. And the umpire counted the two runs, and so they won. Wilmer won. Thielman was the winning pitcher, and Thielman was also dead. He had died of cardiac arrest at third base. It was a good day, and it was a bad day, and it was the same day. You can have days like that. That's what you've got going on here. The Lord saved Israel that day. We celebrate verse 23, but notice verse 24. It was a lousy day. The men of Israel had been hard pressed that day. And this is a passage that points us to their suffering. And the language here is actually taken from Exodus Both the Lord saved Israel that day is Exodus chapter 14 when, remember that God spared Israel at the Red Sea and he saved them that day. It's a direct quote. Now the language is taken from Israel's uh, troubles in Egypt for the word used here for hard pressed is used in its noun form to refer to the taskmasters who cruelly oppressed the people of God in Israel. So here in 1 Samuel, what's going on? Israel is hard-pressed. The army is, as it were, under a taskmaster. Who is that? It's King Saul. King Saul is acting here like Pharaoh of Egypt, an Egyptian taskmaster. He lays on his army a curse, verse 24. Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. It's not that they were hard-pressed so that then later he put a curse on them. Don't misunderstand, and and the ESV has a a different kind of reading. Most of your translations, uh, they were hard-pressed for Saul had laid on them this curse. And that's what's happening here. And it was a real problem. In the first place, he simply put a ban on eating. And it's, of course, hard to keep up your strength without food. I think it was Napoleon who famously said an army marches on its stomach. 
And so how is Israel going to chase down the fleeing Philistines if they don't have any food in the belly, if they don't have energy for the task? Now, this text doesn't tell you what his motive was in doing that. It doesn't say, no, why, did, why did Saul do this? And, and so I, I do want to explore two motives with you. The first is that he may have had a legitimate concern that uh, in their zeal to pursue the Philistines, his soldiers would turn aside from the Philistines to eat the plunder that was laying around. This is after all how armies usually fed themselves as they went to war. I mean, they didn't carry giant backpacks and their own food with them. They plundered and ate what they found. And, and so maybe he wanted to put a stop to that kind of scavenging for the sake of pursuing. And if that's his intent... This is still a foolishly harsh thing to do. It forbade them to eat anything at all. They grew weak. Matthew Henry derides him for it, saying Saul's oath was impolitic, a word that means unwise, for it gained time, for as it gained time, it lost strength for the pursuit. It was imperious, for to, be, for to forbid them to feast would have been commendable, but to forbid them so much as to taste, though ever so hungry, was barbarous. And finally, it was impious or impious to enforce the prohibition with a curse and an oath. Matthew Henry asked the question, had he no penalty, penalty less than anathema wherewith to support his military discipline? Why so harsh a penalty? Well, Israel does chase down the Philistines after the Battle of Bichmash. They've come some 20 miles or so, not over flat land, but over hilly terrain in Palestine. And they've come to the edge of where the hills meet the plain at Ajalon. So they basically cleared the hill country of the Philistines. And then they were what? Worn out. They were completely exhausted. It says time and again, they were faint. Now, Jonathan didn't know that Saul had made this rash, unwise religious oath and set this curse upon the people. So they're in the woods and they're in a thick of it where the honey is flowing thickly, even dropping out of the honeycombs onto the earth. And he takes a little bit and well, sugar will do that to you. It'll brighten the eyes. It'll, it'll put a little strength in you if you're, if you're low. And, and he was low. I think that's all we need to see there. Not something miraculous. He's just acknowledging a little bit of food right now. Pretty good. Uh, and, and, and then, uh-oh, verse 28. They tell him, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. Now, what does Jonathan say to that? What's his reply? Verse 29, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. We missed a great opportunity here. All for the sake of this this oath that my father made us take. Do you understand then what's going on here? Do you see how Saul has acted like a cruel tyrant, like like a pharaoh taskmaster, demanding the people make bricks but not giving them the straw to make them? 
demanding his people hunt the enemy, but not even letting them eat to have the energy to do so. In New Testament terms, this is like the Pharisees whom Jesus criticized in Matthew 23. So much like Saul, listen to his description of the Pharisees. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Pharisees command, Jesus says, but they give you no help. Saul commanded a battle, a pursuit, a victory, but he doesn't let them have food. How unlike then, and remember we said Saul's not a good example of a king. How unlike then the true king, our savior, who came not to chew us up and spit us out as we serve God, who came not to wear us down and trample over us as we serve God, but who came as we heard in the call to worship, who came saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You see what Jesus is saying? I will yoke myself to you. Yoke yourself to me, and I will pull the weight. I will carry the load. This is how it is in Christianity. It's, it's, not, it's not burdensome as we understand and rest in our Savior. Our deliverance is not by our hard work. It is by the hard work that's fully finished by Jesus on our behalf upon the cross. And then applied to us between now and heaven by the spirit so that it's, it's worked out, so that it's expressed out. Yes, we live. Yes, we labor. Yes, we serve. But that's not burdensome either. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, work out your salvation. Not work for it. Not, not work to get it, but work it out. Express it. Not attain it, but live it out. Why? For it is God who works in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Has he called upon us? To wage war, yes, and not as Christian people with flesh and blood. Not to take up arms against those who don't trust in Jesus. But he has called us to wage war, for instance, against sin and against the flesh and the world, the devil. The world set in opposition to Jesus, not humanity, not people, flesh and blood. Has he called us to fight sin? Yes. Has he already rescued us from all the penalty of sin? Yes. Has he already freed us from the authority of sin to command us and have dominion over us? Yes. Will he one day free us from the very presence of sin? Well, he promised it. But for now, we fight sin and we do so by the help of the Spirit, his Spirit, who is in us, working both to will. And to do of God's good pleasure. Are we weak? He is strong. Are we slow? He is patient. Do we trip up and fall flat on our faces? He is gracious. 
And He carries us. Our Savior is all the things this first king of Israel was not. He was cruel. Now secondly, I want you to see his failures as a religious leader, not just as a commander of the army. And here we see he's calculating and manipulative toward God. Um, in the first place, we kind of saw that with his dumb oath, and we'll come back to that. Why, why, does he make, why does he make the fast a religious fast? By attaching an oath to it with a promise of a curse. It's because he's superstitious about God. He thinks God is more likely to listen to him if his men indulge in unnecessary self-denial. We'll fast, he thinks. That'll, that'll get God to work for us, he thinks. I've got to get God on our side. Let's take a religious fast to that end. That, to that end, is a form of legalism. And it produces in people not a desire to obey the Lord, but it actually, over time, produces in people a willingness to disobey the Lord. Notice what happens here. Uh, The chase is over. Evening comes. The oath is no longer binding. So verse 32, the oath is over. It's not binding. They pounce on the spoils of war. They take the sheep and the oxen and the calves and they, what? They slaughter them on the ground and then they feast because they've been famished. But they don't take time to do the ceremonial work of draining the blood, which the Jews in Leviticus chapter 17 were commanded to because the life is in the blood and the blood was to be poured out in the atoning sacrifices as a, as a signifying that, uh, that death had come, death of a substitute. And so the, the Jews were not to eat the blood, but the people are famished and they're hungry, and so they begin to feast, and they begin to break the ceremonial law of God about food. Why? I'd argue because of Saul. When you make things more restrictive than God, people eventually become less restrictive than God. Legalism breeds antinomianism or anti-namas, anti-law. Being tighter than God regarding his law leads people to despise the law and its authority and so become lax in keeping it. So Saul adds a religious oath for something God didn't command him to tell, uh, tell the people to do. And he tightens down hard on them. And the first chance they get, they break out. And they quit paying attention to God's law. Look, if the church tells you, you can't eat meat on Friday as a command from God. And that you must fast for God's sake. When God himself hasn't commanded that then it's no wonder if you eventually conclude that the Lord is a hard taskmaster, his ministers are untrustworthy, and you can live however you want. Some will make food laws governing not just Fridays, but weeks and seasons. Others will throw off all dietary laws, even moral laws, like drunkenness, at least for a season, so that a church law requiring fasts on, say, Ash Wednesday leads unsurprisingly to moral indulgence on Fat Tuesday. 
They're two sides of the same disregard for God's law. Substituting man-made rules in its place. Uh, Think of it this way. As a spiritual leader, Saul errs here. He requires more of God's people than God required of his people in his word. And spiritual leaders, parents even, as you lead your children, uh, harsh and unfeeling commands, especially in the name of religious observance, are more likely to embitter your children than draw them towards the Lord. Think of, some of you know the history of the Reformed Church and and some very uh, narrow and hard Sabbath observant practices that people require their kids to sit all day, sit all day in church, sit all day at home, uh, don't enjoy uh, creation, uh, which in fact the day itself celebrates. Look, the Sabbath celebrates creation. In six days, God made the world. We rejoice in our creator. Sabbath also celebrates redemption. For God rescued his people from Israel, bound in slavery in Egypt, and he freed them. And so we worship the God of creation and the God of redemption. Not one or the other, but both and. So that we worship him, we gather in the church with the people of God to hear his word, to praise his name, to rest our souls in Christ. This is an appropriate activity for Sunday. Welcome. But it's also appropriate to rejoice in the creator and his creation and to celebrate that he gave us bodies to enjoy the world which he has made. It's not either or. It's both and. And, and, and what you find sometimes is the rejection of, of kind of harsh and extra biblical rules about things like just as an example, Sabbath actually leads children growing up in that kind of context to throw off Sabbath completely because they're tired of man-made rules that they don't see in the word. Do you understand what we're getting at? Adding to the law of God doesn't have the effect of helping people want to obey or to obey. It actually gives people the sense that they have permission to do whatever they want with regard to the law of God. Now, interestingly, at verse 34, Saul decides to be very exact in his law-keeping. He provides a way for the blood to be drained. So he's, he's, done, a couple of, uh, he's done a couple of things. He's, 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 he's acted as a religious leader, uh, giving a religious oath on top of the, the religious fast. And now he's actually set up a way for them to, do, to bring in the oxen, and drain the blood, and eat the meat, and observe the ceremonial law. We might say, good for him. It's the right thing to do. Verse 35, Saul built an altar to the Lord. Oh, it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. And I want to suggest, don't think that Saul is just getting all of this right and doing the right thing for the right reason. He's already displayed his true colors, in other words. You come to this passage, you may think, What is is Saul repentant? Is Saul now doing everything the Lord wants him to do? No, no, he's becoming more religious, all the more religious, even as he was already rejected by God in chapter 13 for offering his own sacrifices and not waiting, perhaps you remember, for Samuel to come and offer those sacrifices. So Saul took up the mantle 
of offering the sacrifice. Instead of saying to himself, it's my job to obey my heavenly father. Instead of doing that, he starts picking up things like imposed religious oaths and fasts and these sacrifices. And I would, I would simply argue, uh, as he scolds the army for their treachery, when he himself is the cause of their being famished, um, as Matthew Henry says, Saul is turning aside from God And yet now he began to build altars, being most zealous, as many are, for the form of godliness at the very moment when he is denying the power of godliness. Because Saul doesn't have the power of godliness because he doesn't have a heart for the Lord. And so he's masking it with these outward, observable, zealous forms uh, he, he thinks his interests are imperiled. He's worried he's not going to get a victory against my enemies, is how he described them. These are the enemies of the Lord. And he's worried, and so he thinks, I just need to do whatever I can do to get that victory. I've got to get God on my side. And so he's demonstrating a lack of grace. He thinks it's all up to him. He thinks if he performs well, he can get God to kind of realign He thinks if he just jumps through the right hoops, does the right things, then God will accept him, God will approve him, God will further the cause of Saul. What Saul needed to do was to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me for disobeying you. Have mercy upon me. That might not have gotten his kingdom back, but that would have set his soul at rest before his heavenly father but it's hard to say that isn't it it's hard to say as a Christian it's hard to say I was wrong I'm sorry please forgive me it's still in our hearts we're so hard it's hard for us to say it to the Lord it's hard for us to say it publicly it's hard for us to say it in front of our family it's hard for us to say it to our children and Saul's got the army and his own son right there and his heart is hard Saul's caught in the trap of legalism I'll fix this problem I've got between me and Jesus between me and God I'll take care of it. I'll start doing the right things. And that's just legalism. There's no rest for your soul there. What Saul needs is grace. Is this how you relate to God? Then what you need is grace. You need unmerited favor in the face of all your demerits. And that grace is found in Jesus and it is offered to you in Jesus. His work for you. Not your work for him secures it and gives you rest. Well, let me point you to the last thing. Uh, Saul is a father and his failures there. He is cold and merciless towards his own son. I mean, notice 36 to 46. He proposes in verse 36 to go down now to the Philistines by night after the feasting. And, and they can plunder as they go, he says. Now, pause there. Just recognize how, how, how fickle, 
how flip-floppy he is. The very thing he did not want them to do on the front end, stop and plunder and feast, so I demand you fast, he's now advancing the very opposite of that. Let's go down there for the sake of the plundering and the feasting. And uh, the people, I think, are a bit confused by this and perhaps the other things that have gone on. His men aren't all that crazy about the idea. They say, do whatever seems good to you. Now, that's not really an enthusiastic response of subordinates in the chain of command. It's certainly not like the armor bearer of Jonathan, who when Jonathan proposed going across and attacking, he said, I'm in. I'm with you in heart and soul. Let's go. Right? No, no, no. Do what seems right to you. And then the priest kind of jumps in and interrupts, and he suggests, uh, hey, let's draw near to God. You know, I can't tell the king his idea is stupid or foolish or the army has no enthusiasm for you anymore and your leadership. But he says, let's, let's draw near to God. And then Saul says, oh, yeah, let's do that. I mean, that's a religious thing to do, too. So, let's, okay, bring out, you know, this, uh, these little dice or whatever they are. Nobody really knows what the, the Urim and Thummim are exactly. Uh, whether they're made of stone or some other material, there are two of them. Whether you toss them in the air or you roll them on the ground, whether they have markings on them that give you, you know, the, the same or different and opposite, you come up with different kinds of answers depending upon what's going on. And um, so, so Saul puts the question to the Lord, should we go down? And the answer is Silence. Lord, should we go down and attack them by night? And the answer is a deafening silence. Saul has his own explanation for why that is. There's sin in the camp. And of course, we know on the front end that it's Jonathan who failed to keep Saul's oath. Now, understand, Saul doesn't have power or authority to command the cursing by God of individuals in Israel. So whatever the oath and its curse is, I mean, he's the king, I guess he could put you to death. But, but he doesn't have authority to, to make God curse you for this, nor to make Jonathan be cursed by God for this. But what you do have here, I think, is a, is a classic case of blame shifting. It doesn't dawn on Saul that the reason God is silent is not Jonathan, ultimately. It's Saul himself. Don't you remember Samuel, the prophet of God, who spoke the word of God to to the king, had already gone up from him and left him. He's gathered to himself the castaway priests who are under a curse from God. And now he gets no answer, no answer to his satisfaction. And he thinks it's, you know, as as it plays out, he thinks... Jonathan is the big sinner here, but he never thinks to himself, God isn't talking to me anymore. He isn't telling me what to do. He isn't leading me as the king. And that's on me. But no, he wants to blame his son. Jonathan, for his part, is willing. He's submissive. I ate. King says I should die. Here I am, he says. Let me die. And Saul concludes from that, that yes, in fact, my son 
must indeed die. How cold and unloving is he? Which of you fathers, if your son was to die because of some foolish oath you had made, wouldn't immediately switch places with them and die that death in their place? Saul even says, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. If you don't die and I laid on you that curse, well then I deserve to die for not carrying out that curse upon you, son. How cold. There's no grace in his heart. There's no love even for his own son. And so the one who brought about the victory in God's providence getting the whole thing rolling, Jonathan. He's to be sacrificed now, but the people, they rise to the occasion and they say no. May it not be. Jonathan, don't even touch a hair on his head. And they ransom and rescue Jonathan. And so God used not just the few, but the many to deliver the deliverer. And so before you say to me, as we conclude and think about this story in the gospel. Before you say to me, isn't there a kind of parallel here between Saul's treatment of Jonathan and, as people would say, God's treatment of Jesus? I want you to consider that Saul, there, it's not the same. Saul wants to put his son to death to fulfill a rash and unnecessary oath in order to prop up his own kingdom And to coerce God's favor. And he isn't willing to lift a finger to bear the burden of that curse himself. That is not anything like what we have in the gospel. In the gospel, a loving father, out of love for his enemies, gave, yes, his own beloved son over to the curse of the cross. And that same son, who is God volunteered himself to go to that cross as a substitute for those who deserve it because of our sins, not his. And so in the gospel, God himself bore the burden of his own curse to spare us the burden of it. That's an entirely different thing. And so notice the three contrasts as we close between the first king of Israel and the last and true king of Israel, Jesus. The the first is an overbearing military commander wearing out the people, but the true king came to defeat our enemies and give us rest. And what he commands even, he equips us to do. The first king is is a legalistic religious leader seeking to manipulate God and God's favor with foolish oaths and spur-of-the-moment sacrifices, but Jesus, in his death, doesn't manipulate the love of God. Jesus is himself the expression and manifestation of the love of God. And Saul is a heartless father, protecting only himself and his kingdom while he throws his own son under the bus. But Jesus would rather be cursed than that you suffer the curse. And so he's a much better king and savior.
Let's worship and trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, help us to rest in Christ and Christ alone. For the battle is His. The victory is won. All our enemies He has conquered. Help us to know the blessing of belonging to Him and being led by Him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand and we'll sing.